Good morning. We're going to go ahead and get started. Some of you coming in may be actually normally part of the Malachi class. We apologize that we had to cancel that class today. We're just going to have one class today. If you're in the other class, the second class is on the doctrine of man and sin. We usually do try to have, if we have two classes, we'll have one on uh, biblical studies track where we go through books of the Bible. And then in the other class, we'll have a a doctrine, Christian doctrine or Christian life track. And so this is the Christian doctrine and life track, and we're on the doctrine of man and sin. Uh, We're making our way through that. We'll finish at the end of the year. And today, we are going to, it's our 13th session in this class, we're going to talk about the implications of original sin. Now, the reason, especially if you are joining us from the other class, the reason we're talking about the implications of original sin is because last week we talked about original sin and we talked about how the Bible teaches it, what it means. And so today we're going to follow that up by talking about how, why this doctrine is important, at least some of the ways it is important. So why don't we start with a word of prayer and then we'll, we'll dive into the class. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you this morning. We acknowledge that you are the one true and living God, that there is no other, and that as we gather to worship you this morning, Lord, we uh, are coming before the majestic and holy God, and yet we also come as your children, able to call you Father, reconciled to you through Christ who is the one mediator between God and man. We thank you for his perfect life, uh, for our righteousness, his atoning death to take away our sin, and his victorious and glorious resurrection and ascension to your right hand, that we might have new life with him and hope of our own resurrection unto glory when he returns. And we come with grateful hearts, with Uh, hearts full of love for you because you have first loved us in Christ. And we pray that even today as we gather now in this class to study the teaching of your word together, Lord, that you would meet us and work in our hearts, that you would help us to understand what your word teaches and how it applies to our life, that we might do as Jesus commissioned in the Great Commission, that we might learn to obey all that he has commanded us. And so we ask your blessing upon our class. Help me to teach well for your glory and our good. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So the implications of original sin. That's where we're headed today. I want to just start by a way of review. Okay, so especially if you're not normally in this class, let me just review where we, what we talked about last week, what the Bible teaches about original sin. And the first thing we should say is just that we want to establish that people are not basically good, but basically bad. I know that's counterintuitive, but also very, very common sense. And to reject this is to make a very foolish and destructive decision. Uh, To think that people are basically good will lead to all kinds of folly and harm. People are basically bad. Uh, And we talked about how that's evident not only from just the world around us, our own hearts, but also taught clearly in the scripture. And we established that. And then we talked about how the reason why people are basically bad starts back in the garden with the fact that the first man, Adam, broke God's command in the beginning. And that the consequences of Adam's sin... That is his first transgression, where he broke God's explicit command. You remember what the command was? Of all the trees of the garden you may eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so that first transgression, the consequences of it, were inherited by all Adam's descendants. That is, all humanity, except for one, of course, Jesus, Uh, And the reason for that was because God had established an arrangement where Adam in the beginning acted as our representative head. And so what he did counted for us. Um, Now we may not like that, 
But lest we protest, we ought to remember that Jesus acted as our representative head. And what he did counted for us. So there's a parallel between the work of the first Adam who brought us down into sin and death and the work of the second Adam, Jesus, who brought us up into righteousness and life. Okay, so that's, that's why people are basically bad is because they have inherited the consequences of Adam's first transgression because he was their head and representative. And this inheritance consisted of both guilt and corruption. So that all mankind, with the exception of Jesus, are born with that guilt and corruption that resulted from Adam's sin. It's a very unpopular, frequently rejected teaching, at least at some level. And the rejection of this goes all the way back to the heretic Pelagius, who said that, of course, Adam's sin didn't affect his descendants, but the church rejected that as a heresy and it has ever since. So some people might quibble with certain aspects of this doctrine, but the reality is, is that this has, is the teaching of Scripture and it's been affirmed throughout the church's history and indeed it is important. It's essential, actually, to the gospel to understand this. Um, and I would also say it's quite evident. So if anyone has raised children you realize right away that they're not born innocent with natures inclined toward good. Of course, there is a degree of innocence, relatively speaking. When a child is growing, they they don't know their right hand from their left, but left to themselves, as the proverb says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And left to themselves, without any discipline or correction, they will sin, they'll go astray. And so, we, anyone who has children knows this. You, you can't just let your children go, yeah, free-range kids just doesn't work. All right? God has put us into their life to train them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and that includes correction. Discipline is necessary to restrain the sin in their hearts. And that none of us escape that. So, not only is it taught in the Scriptures, it's also evident Okay, and then we, all, we, we call the guilt and corruption that we inherited from Adam as we call it original sin. So when we say original sin, we're talking about the fact that we're talking about the guilt and the corruption that we inherited from Adam, that we are all born with because of this arrangement that God had established Adam as our head, the first man, and our representative, so that what he did counted for us, and we are... We suffer the consequences, therefore, of his sin. Just like we all have representatives, both at the state and federal level, and we, they act for us, and we suffer the consequences of their sin. Well, there was a similar arrangement in the garden with Adam, and, uh, and that's why we're all born guilty sinners. So, as difficult as that might be, that is what the Bible teaches. It's very important to reject it altogether, is, the church has said, a heresy. Uh, and you cannot do so without undermining the gospel itself. And so this is why, what we talked about last time. And I'm not going to stop and ask questions because we did that, spent the whole last session talking about it. But that needs to be in place in order for us to talk about what we're going to talk about today. So I wanted to review it. So the doctrine of original sin, it raises some difficult questions and also answers other questions. And so this is what we want to talk about today, is we want to talk about the way that original sin, some of the questions that it raises, and some of the questions that it answers. So this is why I'm calling it the implications of the doctrine of original sin. Now the first one, uh, the first question that I want to deal with is a very difficult and sensitive question that is raised by original sin. And If the doctrine of original sin is true, then what happens to infants and severely disabled persons when they die? Right? So if you if you're going to talk about the fact that we all inherit Adam's guilt and corruption, to put it as Paul does in Ephesians 2, 3, if we are all by nature children of wrath, then that raises the question, well, 
What happens then if we're all born with Adam's guilt and corruption? Then what happens to a, an infant, very young child when they die, or someone who uh, is severely disabled and unable to understand the gospel? What happens? This is a, an extremely difficult question, but one that we have to tackle if we are going to affirm what the Bible teaches about original sin. So, an answer. First of all, I just want to make clear. It's cautiously stated. Yes, it's cautiously stated. <laughs> you know, in all seriousness, I, I do recognize the need for both caution, and I'll explain why that is, but also sensitivity, because um, there's no doubt that people in this room have experienced um, miscarriages. I know people in my life who have had young children die, either by way of stillbirth or shortly after their birth, or even at a very young age. One of my fellow pastors down in Sacramento lost a child to an asthma attack at a very young age. I mean, a very difficult thing, right? And so this is something that is not just an abstract question that we deal with with in an abstract way. It's a very personal question, right? Some may be those that care for those with severe disabilities who are unable to understand the gospel, or at least we're not sure what they're able to understand or not. And the question of what happens to either infants or those that are severely disabled when they die is a very, very difficult and sensitive question that we have to be... We desperately want an answer to it. We want to know what what the answer is, especially if you're coming alongside or have gone through the death of an infant, a miscarriage, something along these lines. It's one of the most agonizing things, and you, you desperately want in those times an answer to this question. And the doctrine of original sin seems very problematic in providing an answer because it indicates that all of us are born from conception. We are, as David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. Right? So, these are, this is a challenge. Now, one thing I want to say is that the Bible does speak to it at a certain level. There are some things we can say from the Bible. So, first of all, we must affirm, when we're talking about children who die in infancy, or those that are severely disabled, we cannot say that original sin doesn't affect them. Okay? As much as we might tempt, be tempted to say that, they were completely innocent, we can't. We can't say that. The Bible indicates that, as we look at these texts that I listed there, that we are all, without exception, born with original sin. The only one who broke that pattern was Jesus himself. Now, Ephesians 2.3, "...among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." So, by nature, all mankind has a, a sinful, a corrupt nature. We're conceived uh, in, with that terrible inheritance from Adam. Psalm 51, verse 5, I mentioned this. David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In the context there, he's not talking about the fact that his mother, you know, conceived him through sexual immorality or something like that. No, he's confessing his sin, and he's saying, Look, I, from my conception, I, I was a sinner. Now, obviously, our sin doesn't manifest itself, you know, in the womb. But the, the point is, is it's, it's the corruption of the nature that we're born with. Uh, Proverbs 22, verse 15, same thing. I mentioned it already. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. So youth, it's not as if we all go through our own personal falls like Adam. And we have a, a, an innocence until that point. No, we're, we have to acknowledge that original sin affects all. Secondly, though, 
we do see that God certainly can save even infants, even even from before birth. And I raise this because this is one of the classic examples that the church has looked to throughout its history with respect to this issue. In, in Luke chapter 1, verse 15, we hear concerning the child John the Baptist. It says, For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. You start thinking about the implications of what it would mean for John the Baptist to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. I mean, this is what we would have to call the new birth, what we'd have to call a regeneration. And you ask, well, is that really what what the text is saying? Well, if you go down to verse 41, it says this, And when Elizabeth, who was carrying John the Baptist in her womb at the time, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she prophesied. So, earlier in the chapter, it says that John the Baptist would be filled with the Spirit from the womb. When he hears the voice of the mother of the Messiah, who was also carrying Jesus in her womb, he left, indicating that this was a manifestation of the Spirit already at work in the unborn child, John the Baptist. Strange, mysterious, but it gives you this sense that God can do whatever He wants, right? He's not limited here. If you're asking the question, can God save an unborn infant? Well, just stop and consider the question. Can God do it? Of course He can. In fact, He seems to have done it with John the Baptist here. right? And we would have to acknowledge that the church has seen indications in the Bible that perhaps God does save all unborn infants. So probably the classic text that people have looked to is 2 Samuel 12, verse 23, where it says, David is speaking here about his child who died soon after birth. And this was, you remember, a judgment from God for his immorality with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. Says that God, as a judgment, struck the child dead. And it says in verse 23, But now he is dead. This is David speaking of his child. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And so many have seen there, well, where is David going to go when he dies? Heaven with God or hell? in separation from God. And you say, well, David is going to go to be with God. And so if he's going to go to his child, that would indicate that his child must be with God as well. The problem is, is it could be just simply a more general reference to the grave. My child has died, and one day I will die. I will go down to the grave with my child. He will not come back to me. It could be a more general reference, but some have seen there a hint that perhaps God, an indication that perhaps God does save all little children, little, little infants like David's child that died. We could also say that if God does save infants, small children, severely disabled, well then it would certainly be by grace, if after all they're born with original sin. It's not going to be by merit, right? They are sinners. It'll be by grace, and it will be through Christ's atoning work. So 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is testimony given at the proper time. So if if God does save... Infants, small children, severely disabled, it will be through the mediatorial work of Christ. There, there is no other way that it could happen. You think of Acts chapter 4, verse 12, where it says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So, 
How else would they be saved? Apart from Christ, apart from His atoning work. So these are some things that we can say. However, we have to acknowledge at the end of the day that the Scripture is largely silent on the issue. And what it does say, for instance, 2 Samuel 12, 23, like we looked at, David and his child, it's not really definitive in my opinion. Some people feel like it is definitive. I don't find the biblical evidence to be clear and definitive on this matter, saying with certainty one way or the other. It it seems to be an, an issue upon which the Bible has been largely silent left us in the dark, as it were. So when, when that is the case, when the Bible doesn't speak with clarity, speak with, to give us revelation on a matter, then we cannot speak with certainty about it. But we have to submit to the fact that God just simply hasn't told us all that we would want to know on a particular matter. And so what, when that happens, what are we left with? We're left with the fact that God has proven, has revealed himself to be perfectly good. He always does what is best. Perfectly wise. He always does what is best in the best possible way. And so we have to say, whatever he has decided in these matters, we know it will be perfectly good and wise. That no one is going to stand before him on the final day and say, God, on this matter you were unjust. God forbid, right? A few texts here. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children, that we may do all the words of this law. You see, there is a sense in which the Scripture acknowledges that there are things that are true and real, but hidden from us, so that we don't know all that we might want to know because God hasn't revealed it. And the scripture just says, those things don't belong to you. They belong to God. What you need to worry about is what God has given to you, what he's revealed to you. Genesis 18.25 Abraham interceding with the Lord regarding the city of Sodom where his nephew Lot lived. He said, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be from that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And it's a rhetorical question, right? Yes. The Lord is never going to treat anyone with injustice. So you think about these little babies. You think about those that die in the womb or outside the womb, you think of the severely disabled and you can say, God will never treat anyone with injustice. We may not know all of the ways that he has purposed to deal with them, but we know it will be right. So what do we do with this? What do we do if, for instance, we we lose a child and we want to know, God, how do I wrap my mind around this? What, What do I do? I always commend this psalm because I think it's given to us for this very reason. Psalm 131. It's the psalm of David. He says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So King David recognized that he needed to not try to wrap his mind around things that were too high for him. That he needed to quiet his soul and rest in the Lord and simply confess his hope in Yahweh. And I think there are times when we have to do that. Now, I did want to add one more thing, and that is, The great Protestant confessions that came out of the English Reformation, there were three main ones. The Westminster Confession of Faith was the Confession of the Presbyterians. The Savoy Declaration was the confession of those like John Owen who were Congregationalists. And then there was the London Baptist Confession of Faith, which was the Confession of the Baptists. 
the Savoy and the London Baptists adopted much of the language of the great Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, where they could, they tried to affirm the same truths in the same way. So there's a lot of overlap between the three confessions to show their unity in the midst of their distinction. And all three major, the great, the great Protestant confessions that came out of England confess the same statement on this issue. They said, elect infants, dying in infancy, are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who worketh when and where and how he pleaseth. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. That I think is a reference to those who are severely disabled. So notice what they do. They affirm that uh, God can save all infants and severely disabled who he chooses, right? All those who are elect. Now you could say that the the great thrust of the statement is that is an affirmation that they believe that he does save some. But they the very language also leaves open the possibility that we just don't know how many are in this category, right? However many God chooses to save will be saved. And if they're saved, they'll be saved through the regenerating work of the Spirit and by the work of Christ. So, and I think that that is a wise and probably sound summary of what we should also believe and affirm on this matter. So, with that said, anyone have questions? Anyone want to ask? Yeah, go ahead. Um, I wonder about when the Israelites were to go into Canaan and take over the land and the spies went and said, you know, this and that. And basically the people were afraid and they didn't do it. So the Lord punished them by making them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. But in um, Numbers 14.29, says, the carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in the wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above. So I'm wondering, there seems to be an extra measure of grace based upon the youth of these people between under 20 I mean, that just certainly isn't definitive either. Right. It just seems to play into this a little bit. You know, there's a, a book uh, by John MacArthur called Safe in the Arms of God. And in the book he compiles, he seems to exhaust all the different kinds of potential texts that could bear upon this issue. He makes a case that, taken collectively and understood, he interprets each one, that they definitively make the case that you know, infants, uh, young children are saved. That's why it's called safe in the arms of God. You know, for me personally, I'm not convinced by the case that it's some kind of open and shut case. I mean, if, if you take a text like that, um, you could step back and say, yeah, that there's something like God, God didn't hold the, the children accountable for the parents' sin, right? And it's true, like the Israelites, the the older generation were, the adults were held accountable for the sin. And why was that? Because they were the ones that committed the sin, right? And basically, God was saying that their children were not liable for that, that they were not, that they were not participants in that sin. So, there's something there, but does that settle the issue of you know, whether infants and others are, whether they're going to be saved. In my mind, you know, it doesn't, that text doesn't mean that they're not sinners, right? (laughs) And so you still come back to the same issue and say, well, that, that might pertain, but it's not definitive, you know, on the issue. That's, that's how I look at it. Yeah. I was going to toss it out there that uh, Ingrid Carpenter was following on the heels of Spurgeon. 
Yeah. Who also made an exhaustive examination of everything that the scripture seems to say on the matter, and he arrived at the conclusion that he believed that it was definitive. Mm-hmm. But I, I agree with you that we can't, not from the scripture alone, can we say, oh, it definitely says this because it doesn't. It seems to say, and I feel contented in my own heart with the conclusions that I've derived from mm-hmm. a, from a study of it. Right. It, uh, uh, it's a study that would bear much fruit for anyone interested in digging into it. MacArthur's got a lot of really good things to say on it. Uh, mm-hmm. Spurgeon has a lot of really good things to say on it. And Wretched Radio did a yeah. whole number on it. Yeah. It was pretty good. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of text to consider. But having read through it myself, I, I just don't find it to be definitive. Now, I would say this. like, I think part of what happens is we as those in the image of God... Right, if you say, would God, let's, let me be very, very uh, just um, frank, right? even though I want to be very careful and sensitive, that would God send an, an infant who dies in infancy to hell? Everything in me just revolts against that idea, right? <laughs> I say, no, God would never do that. Why? Because it doesn't seem just to me. But it's just that I also know that I'm a pea-brained sinner and what doesn't seem just to me is not necessarily the ultimate standard of right and wrong. I, so, and I think that where that leaves me is I have great hope that God will save infants. And I, but at the same time, I, because the, I don't think the scripture speaks definitively to it, I have to leave that in God's hands and say, I, I just don't know what the answer is to that. Yeah, Katrin. Sort of a very dangerous teaching of a Sunday school teacher that was trying to say that the children, the infants that die young, their determination of where they go depends on the salvation of the parents. And I don't have a scripture that they were trying to stand on, but I did not agree with that. And I didn't know if anybody else had heard that, so I thought I'd bring that up for you to... Yeah. Thank you for making a difficult issue more difficult. No. <laughs> well, I would say, Katrina, I, I don't, I'm just joking with you, but I, I would say that within the Presbyterian tradition, if I'm understanding it correctly, there has been an understanding that those children of believers, in other words, those children that are born into the covenant community. Because in the Paedo-Baptist tradition, um, the infants, children of believers are members of the new covenant. And they view children of believers as being, uh, having a status of holiness, not saved, but having a status of some degree of holiness uh, from First uh, Corinthians seven, and it's complicated. But and so many within that camp, if I'm if I'm I believe if I'm remembering and understanding their position correctly, would believe that the children of believers, therefore, on that basis, as members of the new covenant, would be saved, and that it would be outside the covenant community where there would be a degree of question. So it's a little more. Complicated than just like if their parents are saved, then they're automatically saved. It has to do with issues pertaining to covenant theology and whatnot. So, and I could be wrong on that. Uh, ben, you could correct me if you <laughs> if I am wrong, but so. okay, <laughs> pretty much right. So, from a basic Baptist perspective, that's good. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right, Sam. Do these same principles uh, apply to unreached? people groups that have never heard of the Bible, never heard of God, even as adults, before they die? Yeah, I would say that in some way they do, but when you're talking about the mass of humanity throughout the world, and if you say, how could God send them to hell if they've never, they've never even had a chance to hear? See, there is a subtle implication behind that question, which is that it's unfair if they don't have a chance to be saved. But we want to affirm 
Because the Bible clearly affirms that we're saved by grace. And that, so if, so God doesn't owe anyone salvation or even the chance to be saved. So even the opportunity to hear the gospel is grace. If you have someone, any, you know, adult human being throughout the world, or any, you know, human being with, and this is where, where do you draw a line of moral accountability? (laughs) I mean, they have committed plenty of sins to merit judgment, right? And so, if God were to send them to eternal destruction, that would be justice. If he gave them the opportunity to hear the gospel, that would be grace. If he changed their hearts and brought them to saving faith, that would be grace. But to judge them without an opportunity to hear is not injustice, right? And so I think there is a a distinction between that and an infant, right, who is still goo-goo-ga-ga, doesn't know anything, there's there's a moral distinction between that, yeah. uh, Geraldine, and then like, yeah. I was just gonna say if you um, think about like the doctrines of election and predestination, right. you know, and where it says um, before you were born, God chose you, it wouldn't necessarily matter, right? Like what age you were. It's like God has His elect people, whether or not they were ever born, you know, whether they died in the womb or they were two days old, two years old, or on their deathbed. Right, so God chooses you to be part of His right. um, elect. Right. Age wouldn't really matter. Neither would disability, or you know, and it's all like you were saying of His grace and mercy that He did choose right. some to be saved. So, right. So this is where I think the statement here. So I mean, obviously, here at Cow Creek, we affirm the doctrine of unconditional election that God chooses some to be saved even before the foundation of the world. See that in Ephesians 1, 3, for instance. And so what the confession, the confessions are affirming, who also affirm the doctrine of unconditional election, is that all God's elect will be saved. That's what we we can know. The question is, has he chosen to save all infants and severely disabled? That's where the element of mystery comes in. But we can fall back on the fact that we know that all that God has chosen to save will be saved. Sorry. All the um, it says that God's law will be written upon the hearts. And uh, I've been reading a, a book about the missionary that it was going, you know, an area that had never been reached as far as I knew. Nobody had ever been there. And they found believers. Mm-hmm. They weren't uh, the solid foundation of the written scriptures that we have, but they had the basics of acknowledging that there was a God and that there was you know, the deity that saved them and, and the morality that came with. Well, yeah. Right. I mean, I think that obviously on the one hand we want to affirm no one is saved apart from faith in Christ. It raises the question could there be people out there who have received knowledge of Christ and without anyone t- to tell them, right? Or even access to the scriptures. You know, again, we're kind of shut up to the grace of God or to mystery here. You know, God can do things that we, we never want to say, well, God couldn't do that. He could. We just don't know. always know. Yeah, Steve. Uh, I was just curious on you, how you interpret a couple of scriptures. Yeah. But I could be totally, I don't know. Uh, first is when Christ says, you know, whoever causes one of these little ones, you know, right. kind of essentially, you know, let them be most of them, better than most of them. Then, which, that could cause a kind of cry versus, you know, say, just by being his children. Right. Um, then the other scripture is, how do you interpret or how, how can I understand and the sins of a father visiting four generations, you know, and then, yeah. and I guess the other one that comes to mind too is when the, you know, when they're in the wilderness and they, um, one dude stole um, some treasure, the entire household was stolen. Right. 
Well, um, on your first question, with respect to the language of little ones in the Gospels, um, the context need to need to be careful with the context. The context sometimes sometimes little ones in the gospel is a way that Jesus would speak of his disciples. And so it, it would depend on which passage you're speaking to. Although Jesus takes a little child, says, you know, welcomes the children, says to such belong the kingdom of heaven. And I'm paraphrasing, but there are multiple texts. So the, can, can God save children? Absolutely. You know, like John the Baptist apparently was regenerated even in the womb. So he would never want to say that God couldn't save little children. And, that, uh, that even a little child can believe and have simple faith and trust. With respect to the sins of the fathers, are you speaking like... Because I would say that... The, consequence? the consequences, right? Yeah. yeah. The consequences of sin are affected down the generations. And I think that's just a fairly obvious thing that we could see. But I don't think that means that... Eternal versus... Right. And there are certain arrangements where God establishes a collective identity, right? So, for instance, in the nation... In, with Adam, what he did counted for us because God had arranged him as our representative head. You could say the same thing with respect to Israel. Achan sinned. The whole nation <laughs> bore the consequences of that. Why? Because God had established a collective identity there and you could say the same thing with the church that if the church had a blatant sinner in their midst refusing to repent and did nothing about it you know god may hold the church accountable for that in a certain way with some consequences right but in these things we're talking about temporal consequences in this life not necessarily with respect to eternal life eternal destiny if that makes sense steve yeah maybe you can Speak to the, the fact that all of us humans are going to stand before the judgment, right? Right. And the Bible, in several places, talks about how we'll be judged based on our behavior, right? Like it'll be shown, right? And, that, and there's a certain sense where God's God will be vindicated on the last day because He already knows what we've done, right? But it's for the it's for everyone to see. God's justice and right. His mercy. Right. So, how does that? When it, so there, there's several things. There's a couple questions maybe involved in this, but it will be if an infant is standing before God. Right. The whole world's going to go. Yes, God is just. Right. And they're going to be judged based off of like their lawless deeds. Right. Right. They're convicted. So God. So that's what's going to reveal to us that God's just. How does that play in? Yeah. Well, I think this would be a kind of argument that would be used um, for, you know, the the position that we can know all infants will be saved. Again, I just I'm I'm hesitant because we want to affirm theologically that sin is a matter not just of behavior but of thoughts and desires and also even of our nature. That even our nature, we are by nature children of wrath, Paul says, which means we are by nature people who are opposed to God. And so, apart from Christ and the regeneration of the Spirit and apart from the blood of Christ, the disposition of our nature is hostile to God. And for that, we could be held accountable. Um, Now, with respect to a tiny infant, and how that would play out on Judgment Day, I just don't know. And, and like you, Steve, I mean, I, I, I'm hesitant because I don't like to make these firm pronouncements about things about which this, we're talking about inferences and implications that are somewhat down the road. But for the, the very reason that you're talking about, right, I would be like, it seems to me like he would... Like he would save them, right? <laughs> or that they would be spared. And if they were if they were to be judged, we would at least have to say that to whom much is given, much be acquired, that there's a principle of justice that there are degrees of accountability given based upon what you knew. And so 
Um, I think those types of things are reasons why we would all want to say, it seems to me that... But there would be a proportionality of justice. Right. Like, if it is the case that right. they'll be judged based on... Right. Yeah, I mean... portion of their defense to God. Right. In, in their time on earth, over short time. Right. On the one hand, I want to say, I can't fathom it. I can't fathom how an infant would be sentenced to eternal destruction in the final judgment. I can't fathom. I can't wrap my head around how that could possibly be. If it were to happen, it would be done according to justice. And there are degrees of accountability. You know, Jesus said to the men of Sodom, it will be worse for you on judgment day than it will for Sodom and Gomorrah because... You know, basically, they had Christ. You have Christ in your midst doing... So you have more light, more accountability. And so, however it were to play out, there would be a proportionality there, which, again, I... It's not funny to say with Abraham, far be it from you, Lord, to do this. Right. <laughs> well, no, I would be willing to say, shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? I say, whatever happens, it's going to be what's right. Okay, you guys. I gotta. I can't take any more questions because I gotta move through these these uh, other slides here. I'm gonna have to do so pretty quickly here. So, let's look at another difficult question. How can a homosexual orientation or a gender dysphoria? You guys know what gender dysphoria refers to? It refers to feelings of discomfort with your biological sex, which we would say is gender, and a desire to have a different gender, right? How can these experiences be wrong when they arise naturally in the heart from an extremely early age? Some people will say, this is all I've ever known. How can I be justly condemned for desires and thoughts I didn't choose? I mean, this is the sort of, at least in the older forms of it. This is the sort of born this way, what's behind the born this way slogan, which you can find if you Google it. I'm not suggesting that you do, but I'm just saying it's out there. It's a difficult question, right? However, the answer provided by original sin. The question presumes that original sin doesn't exist, right? Doesn't it? If you think about it, if original sin does exist, then the question is, quite easily answered, actually. We were born with corrupt natures, which are inclined to sin. And that sin might involve both wicked and disordered thoughts and desires. In other words, desires to do what God forbids, and also desires to violate God's created order. So what original sin says is that We are born with natures that are corrupted. We've inherited them from Adam. And so they produce all manner of sinful desires, sinful thoughts, disordered desires. I mean, the fact that you want to eat not just five bites of ice cream, but 25 bites of ice cream every day, morning and night, shows you we have disordered desires, right? And for which we are culpable. Why? Because Adam was our representative head. So, if, if from a biblical perspective, it should not surprise us that we should, that certain disordered and sinful desires would come naturally to us. And that perhaps we might experience them from a very young age because we're born with corrupt nature. Matthew chapter 15. Do you remember Jesus' famous words? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. I mean, Jesus is saying nothing other than, obviously, he's revealing to us truth about ourselves, but he's also just telling us what we already know if we would stop denying it. And that is that we have all kinds of filthy, disordered, corrupt desires and thoughts that just naturally arise out of our sin nature, even as Christians, out of our remaining sin nature, every day. 
We don't even know all of them. Because some of them are very subtle. So, and, and why is that? Because we're born with a sinful nature. Why are we born with a sinful nature? Because what, we have inherited Adam's, the consequences of Adam's sin. So you see, original sin explains it very... Why you might have someone that has disordered desires, like gender dysphoria, homosexual desires, even from a young age. And, and this, this sinful nature is... We're, we're culpable for it. Say, well, I didn't choose it. Yeah, because Adam chose for us. God had arranged it that way. Adam was our representative head. What he did counted for us, and so we have inherited the consequences of his sin. You say, I don't like that. Again, well, then what are you going to do when the Bible says that we have inherited to the benefits of Christ's obedience? Another difficult question. If God is almighty and perfectly good, then why does he allow natural disasters to occur which cause so much harm to so many innocent people? Every time there is a tornado, a hurricane, an earthquake, a, another wildfire, we hear it in the news, you know, where is your God now? If, in other words, the implication is if he was good, if God existed and if he was good, he wouldn't have allowed this to happen. Well, the answer is provided by original sin. Because, again, that question assumes there is such a thing as innocent people. But the doctrine of original sin says that is an empty set. There, there is no category of people that are truly innocent. Think of Romans chapter 3. And if you remember the argument of Romans, you'll remember that Paul is making the, a case. I mean, if you read this passage in his context, you just can't miss it. He's making the case that all are under sin. They are guilty and under the consequences of sin. And he's saying that so that he can set up the gospel, which is that God has provided a righteousness that is apart from your, from your own merits. A justification that you receive as a gift through faith. But listen to how he describes humanity. He says in verse 9 of chapter 3, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, again, this is not how people think of themselves, but this is the Bible's sober evaluation of mankind. Down in verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there is no category of people other than Jesus who could be described as truly innocent. And so instead, all people are born guilty sinners. As we've said, this is the doctrine of original sin. We have inherited the guilt and corruption of Adam. We're born with a sinful nature. And that nature is worthy of judgment. Ephesians 2, 3, we are by nature children of wrath. Romans 1, 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, which is unpacked here in Romans 3, right? So all of us are born sinners. All of us are under condemnation for sin. All of us are under the judgment of God. And so... There is no, technically, there's no, I mean, we could use the word innocent in a more relative sense. We could say a robber comes along, breaks into a house, shoots the family, takes all their valuables. They didn't do anything wrong. And we could say they didn't deserve that. And we would be right. Or people that are killed in a hurricane, their death was not the direct result of them, of their sin. But in a general sense, we're all are sinners, and all are under God's judgment. And we are under a curse. I mean, all of these things that happen, natural disasters, they are the effects of the curse. What is the curse? Why is there a curse? It's God's judgment against Adam's sin. And we have inherited it. Just like our sinful natures, we're also inherited the effects of the curse. So there is a sense in which you could step back and you could say that all of the effects of the curse, like tornadoes and hurricanes and whatnot, are a judgment against 
Adam, humanity for Adam's sin. And that is just because there is no truly innocent people. And so, well, people who die in natural disasters are not being punished for personal sin. On the other hand, we have to affirm that God is not unjust to allow it to happen, as if the people who die are innocent, truly innocent. Do you remember how Jesus responded to the question that, well, it was a question that he posed, but in Luke 1, he says, it says, or Luke 13, 1, it says, there were some present at that very time who told them about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Okay, so you have an oppressive ruler. He murders what we would describe perhaps innocent people. And Jesus says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell, a sort of natural disaster type of event, on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You see, that's a different, (laughs) that's a little bit of a different way of looking at things, isn't it? On the one hand, he's not saying, he's saying they didn't, they weren't being punished for their personal sin, but we are all sinners. And when things like that happen, God is not being unjust by allowing something like that happen. In fact, we're all going to perish if we don't repent. So, if you think about it, if you just step back and think of the biblical storyline, God could justly wipe out all humanity at any point. In fact, he pretty much did at the flood, right? Men, women, children, all humanity except eight persons. Why did he do that? Do you remember why? Because the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth, that all flesh had corrupted its way, and so he regretted that he made them to use that human way of describing it, and he purposed to blot out all flesh from the earth. But in his mercy he spared a tiny remnant. So we can't say that God is unjust in doing that because we're born sinners, like Jesus says. Unless we repent, we will all likewise perish. In fact, there's going to come a day when God will judge all the earth. And the only people that will be spared from that judgment are those who have been rescued through Christ. Every person on earth will be judged in a final climactic judgment. So, it's sober. But original sin, the fact that we have inherited the the consequences of Adam's sin because he was our head and representative, explains this as well. It's it's only if we assume that that never happened and that we're all sort of born in a state of innocence that you would protest. We're living in a fallen world. We're fallen people. We need to be saved. The difficult stuff I, I recognize, but and we're out of time for questions. I would like to have you guys ask questions and feel free to come up to me afterwards and ask questions that you might have about these things. I know these are difficult, but I wanted to get this out there just so you can see the importance of this doctrine. If you deny this doctrine, it leaves you with all kinds of problems, questions that can't be answered. Whereas if this doctrine is in place in our minds, it actually gives an explanation for a lot of the questions that people have about, about Christianity or a Christian perspective. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time this morning. We know that these are difficult things, Lord, and we want to acknowledge that we are, we are extremely small and weak in our humanity, and we are also sinners to boot and sin affects our minds and our thinking we thank you that you've given us faith you've regenerated our hearts so that we can understand and accept what you teach us in your word but we know that you haven't told us everything and so we want to humbly acknowledge our weakness our sinfulness and ask that you would help us to understand the things that you have revealed properly And on these extremely difficult issues, we pray for a a heart of humility, a heart of teachability, and a heart of trust. And even where we don't understand completely, even where all our questions are not answered, that we would be able to say with David, 
I do not occupy myself with things that are too great, too one- marvelous for me, but like a weaned child, I quiet my soul, and that we would hope in you. And we pray that you would help us, give us comfort, give us peace with respect to these matters, even today. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.